Today we're going to um, continue to uh, hear uh, testimonies from um, team members who went to Ecuador this past summer. Um, Monica Lee is a uh, fourth-year nursing student at the University of Central Florida, UCF. She's going to come and she's going to share um, the convictions and the work that God's done in her life. So let's uh, welcome her up. A round of applause. Okay. <laughs> All right. My name is Monica, and I'm a senior at the University of Central Florida. And this is my second trip to Ecuador, and the first being back in 2009. And in 2009, our church was traveling to Ecuador for the first time. And now, several trips later, I'm back to Ecuador, and it's 2012. Uh, so time truly flies. And I know the older members of our congregation are going to groan when I say this, but I feel so old. <laughs> and um, so I'm almost done with nursing school and will soon be off in the working world. And my friends are getting married and my parents are getting wrinklier and my <laughs> friends. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. Um and my friends and family members are passing away, but this trip reminded me that life is too fast and there seems to never be enough time. But from that initial trip to Ecuador, I have changed so much and God used this short amount of time, even though it felt like forever, to change and mold me into the woman he wants me to be. Um, he uses times of loneliness to show me that only he can fully satisfy the longings of my heart. And he taught me how to be patient by being patient with me. And he uses every microsecond of my life to tell me how much he loves me. But he not only loves me, but also he loves this world. So um, last year on the mission field, God revealed to me that I was going to become a nurse. Um, and when I was in the Dominican Republic, I shared with the church there that I would come back as a nurse and commit myself to him long-term. I went home and created a list of requ requirements that God needed to fulfill for me to go into long-term missions. I said stuff like, God, it would be really nice if you gave me like a doctor husband so we can work together on the mission field and serve you, Lord. Or, oh God, it would be really hard for me to learn a different language. And I don't even speak Korean. So can you call me to a place that speaks English? But um, yeah, God doesn't want my acts of service to him. He desires my heart to be devoted to him and to follow him wherever he would lead me. And um, this is where I was lacking. Going into the trip, I was very angry and broken. And I found it very hard to be joyful but praise God for not wasting or for wanting to use broken people like me he gave me the strength when I had no strength to fight um, so the beginning half of my trip I spent time with the wonderful dental team Where we at? yeah so um, the team consisted consisted of my missionary mommy and daddy Chris and Hay um, Mr. Oogs and Miss Sarah. I really had <laughs> no idea what I was doing, but it turned out okay. So praise the Lord. It was also really fun, and I got to learn a lot of new skills. But a very important part of the whole dental ministry, more so than the doctors or the transformer-like chairs, was um, the sterilization. And um, 
Mr. Chris thought this up, and we would, after the tools were used, we would put them in like a bucket of like green substance, like liquid, and then uh, we would scrub them, and then we would dunk it in something else, and then we would put it in a pot of boiling water for 10 minutes. And this process took a long time, but it was the most important because um, if we didn't have tools to like yank people's teeth out, then we wouldn't have anything to do uh, on the mission field. So um, they wouldn't be able to do their work, the doctors. So I want to thank Miss Sarah for scrubbing all those pokey tools. Thank you. And um, so tying this into my spiritual life, I thought that the being used part was all missions was about, but God really uses the times before and after to refine me so that I can be changed, and he is given all the glory in the end. Um, this process might be long and hard, but in the end, we can fully see the change in our lives. And I really didn't like this process because it hurt, and it made me feel really uncomfortable. But in the end, I'm so thankful that God placed me in that place where I can trust and cling to him. Um, this trip to Ecuador gave me a bigger picture of missions. <laughs> he is slowly, oh man, it's gonna be, he is slowly solidifying my character and is continuously teaching me to trust in him in all situations. He taught me that in times this road is lonely, but he desires to walk with me daily. And through my life and this trip, he has shown me how awesome he is. How can I not be moved into action for this amazing God? Um, he's changed me and has called me to live for him and life is too short to live for myself and I want to live for his purpose and his purpose alone and I also want to give a shout out to my brother Tico um, miss you love you and I and I know you're having an amazing time rocking out with Jesus so see you soon Thanks, Monica. Hey, there's something about that microphone and Ecuador testimonies that make us forget how to speak English or something. But uh, praise God for that. Um, all right. Um, thanks. As um, last couple weeks, as actually last few weeks, as I've been um, talking with folks of the Harvest here, um, there's certain um, two common themes that have constantly come up in, in conversation. One, there's one, one stream of people that says, you know, hey, I am um, just flying high and soaring with God. Everything is going so well. Um, I felt convicted and joyfully blessed and sweetly just uh, captivated by God and his grace and all the good work that he's doing. And I'm just so excited to, to go out there and to live for God. Um, there's that one group of people that are like that. There's another group of people who are saying, you know what, I felt that way after our mission trip to Ecuador, after this revival, after this retreat, after all that God has been doing in my life, I just really feel like whether it's with a new school year or where I'm at, I'm, I'm just really ready to go into attack and to, to live for Christ. I felt that way, but somewhere along the way, I began to feel like I'm not sure if, if all that stuff that I'd gotten from God was really all that real. And, and, and there's doubts and there's fears and there's despair and, and this, just, this place where I feel like I'm down in the dumps, but reality is hit and reality kind of hurts. And the more people I talk to, the more people I feel like are in that, that second category of people who just feel like, you know what, um, I don't know what to do at this point. I felt like God had given me something good and a conviction and a challenge, and, and it's really difficult to live out as I, as I move forward. If you're in that latter group of people, then there is a uh, gift of God in the, in the Word of God 
uh, from 1 Kings 19 because that's exactly where the prophet Elijah felt. Right? He was on top of the mountain, seen all these miracles of God, done all these great things. And then we get to this place where he just has his death wish on his life. And he says, I'm ready to die. I feel so depressed. I feel so discouraged. I don't know if I want to live anymore. Um, life just isn't worth living. You ever feel like that? Do you feel like that this morning? I think uh, some of us do. And so I want to turn our attention to 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, we, we began with this passage last week. We're going to uh, focus on the second, ha- uh, second half of the chapter, but I want to read it in its context. 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 18 about the true account of something that actually happened to a prophet of God named Elijah and to see what got him to that place and what God did in order to awaken him from that place. Uh, this is 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, this is a king telling his wife, everything Elijah had done on on Mount Carmel and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and pray that he might die. Had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. This is God's word. This is a... Really, really, really powerful stuff here. What we see is Elijah was on top of the mountain, 
on the edge of glory, right, with Lady Gaga, on the edge of glory on the mountain. Glory of God falls like fire. He's like all riled up. He's excited. And yet, the next time we see him, last week we saw him, he was in this valley, just ready to die and ready to give everything up. And yet, by the grace of God, God takes him to another mountain, which would be probably as significant, if not more significant, than the previous mountain that he was at. And yet, this mountain cop experience would look completely different from the bells and whistles and miracles and rah-rah and hoopla and all that stuff of Mount Carmel. And I, I want to say that for all of us who felt like at one point we were on the mountaintop with God, experiencing the glory of God, the power of God, the anointing of God, the infilling of His Spirit, the conviction, the joy, the blessing, and you find yourself now in a valley, you find yourself in a different place, God is saying, I want to take you from mountaintop to mountaintop, but you have to be careful because the mountaintop that I'm going to take you to that's going to change your life completely is most likely going to be extremely different from what you think a mountaintop experience ought to look like. And from glory to glory, I will take you so that your life can continually be changed in that place. What happened? How does he get from one place to another? We know how he got into the valley, right? Last week we saw Elijah in the midst of seeing all of these great miracles, three bang, 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 powerful miracles in a row. Elijah gets into this place where he's just down in the dumps because he thought after seeing the glory of God, life was going to be easy. And then he moved forward in his own strength and he fell completely flat. And then lastly, he forgot everything that he saw on the mountaintop and he said, you know what? I'm ready to die. I'm done. I'm spent. It's over. Let's go. Take me away now. And he closes his eyes to sleep, thinking that hopefully when he wakes up, he'll be in heaven. But it's not the case. So what happened? My simple mission today is how do we get from the mountaintop to the valley where many of us may be right now, wondering, doubting, questioning, despairing, the midst of everything that God has given to us. Is that real? Is that a a true conviction? Is that simply an emotion? How do we get from there back up to the mountaintop where God's empowering and life-transforming presence can meet us again? That's what we want to do. Very simple. We can get there from... Uh, point to point. The first thought that I want to offer to you here from this text is this. If you don't like where you are, okay, don't stay there. That's pretty simple, isn't it? So he, Elijah's like, oh, I don't like where I'm at. This is terrible. This is terrible. God, take me away. And so what does God do? God brings him to the mountain, right, to a cave, Mount Horeb. Why does he bring him there? It's because God wants to move him out of this place. And how does he do that? He does it with the voice of God. Right? Look at what he says in verse 9, second part of verse 9. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? You ever have anyone ask you that question before? What are you doing here? Typically, when someone says, what are you doing here? It usually means, I don't want you to be here. You're not supposed to be here. Get out of this place. Like when... Um, we're hang- I've got some people at my house, and we're hanging out in the living room, and our, our daughter, Manny, is supposed to be sleeping. And she opens the door, and she comes out with her little dog and her little blanket, and then she's got this, like, smile on her face, and she kind of, like, tiptoes out. We say, what are you doing here? We're telling her, you're not supposed to be here. We don't want you here. Go back into the place where you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be here. Or you ever have a time where you snuck into a movie? You're like a 15-year-old, and you snuck into a rated R movie, and then as you sneak into the back row, oh, my gosh, your Sunday school teacher's there. And she says to you, what are you doing here? In essence, what she's trying to say, what he's trying to say is, you're not supposed to be here. Get out. I don't want you to be here. Or your wife is having girls' night out, and they're like, we're going to go to this place, and we're going to have a great time at this restaurant, and, and all of a sudden, you show up there. It's like, what are you doing here? 
When God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's not asking him a geographical question. He's telling him, this is not the place where you're supposed to be, Elijah. Don't you see? How did you get from the mountaintop down here in the dumps where you had this mission to go and to, to, to bring revival to your country? You saw that I was able to do it, didn't you, Elijah? But what are you doing here, ready to die at the mouth of a cave? What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't want you to be here. That's what God is saying. And for all of us who feel like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be in this place. I don't know if I, some of us are like, I don't even want to live. You ever feel like that? I don't want to wake up today. I don't want to face today because it's so hard. Because reality, quite frankly, bites. And I realize I'm not on a mission trip anymore. I'm not at a revival. I'm not at a retreat. I'm not at Shingle Creek. I'm all by myself. If you feel that way, then God's question for you is, what are you doing here? And he asked that not to ask a, a locational question, but to ask a spiritual, emotional question. What are you doing here? Why are you here? And look at Elijah's response. I've been very zealous for you. I, and basically he's saying, I did everything right, God. Everything that I was supposed to do, everything that you told me to do, I took steps of obedient faith. But look what happened. The Israelites, it's those clowns out there, they rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death. And you know what? I'm the only one left. I'm all alone. I'm the only one left, so just take me, take me. They're trying to kill me too. And here's what Elijah does. God sees him in the place where he is. He sees him down in the dumps. He sees that he's depressed. And he says, what are you doing here? In essence, he's trying to say, Elijah, get up and go. You're not supposed to be here. And Elijah's like, you know why I'm here, God? It's not my fault. I did it all right. But these clowns out here, they're doing it all wrong. It's their fault. And at a certain point, what God is saying to Elijah is, look, you need to stop putting the blame on other people. You need to stop thinking that it's going to get better when these things get better, and you need to take ownership over your own relationship with me. Now, you need to get up and you need to get going because you're not supposed to be here. I think a, a lot of times we have this attitude like, okay, you know what? I'm going to wait until the next revival, and then I'll be okay. But why would you wait until that? Why would you wait until the next Sunday uh, to, to get out of the dumps when you could have that now? You, you kind of get the drift. It's like people say, oh, I'm so dissatisfied with my spiritual life. And, and same conversation over and over and over and over and over again for like eight years. God, there's got to be something more in my relationship with God. There's got to be something more. I know that I'm missing something. I know that I'm not living the way that I ought to be living. I know that there's blessings and joy on the other side of obedience. And the question is, why are we staying where we are then? What are we waiting for? A lot of times, like Elijah, we shift the blame to other people and say, you know what? The revival wasn't really that great. Or the retreat wasn't really that great. Oh, I, I didn't understand what they were saying or this and that, and all of these things. And, and, and God is saying, hey, Elijah, it's not about all of those things. And I've got a mountaintop experience for you right now if you want it. He's saying to all of us, I've got a mountain for you to climb where you will meet me in a life-changing way, and that's available to you right now. And it's available tomorrow. And it will be available 10 years later, but the question is, why wait until then? What are you doing here, Elijah, God asks him. I, I think you may remember me telling this uh, tale about this guy. Um, he was just complaining that he's got this real 
um, sore in his backside, right, on his butt. And he felt around and he looked at a mirror and he realized that he had a, a thumbtack in his butt, in his rear. He's like, oh, my gosh, this is causing me so much pain. I hate it. I really don't like it. I really don't like it. So he went to a counselor, and the counselor said, yeah, you know what? Tell me about that tack. And he just began to say, yeah, I've had this tack. I don't know how long it's been, but it's really bothering me. I really don't like it, and it's causing me all this pain. So, okay, pay me $100 and come back, and we'll talk about it again next week. He's like, I don't want to do that. He went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, yeah, you know what? I think um, I'll give you some medication to take care of that. He's like, I don't want that. I don't want medications. He goes to the doctor, and the doctor does all of these text tests, does all these x-rays, looks at it. He says, you know what? I diagnosed this as tack in the rear syndrome here. I was like, okay, that's cool. He goes to a, um, well, he goes to a, a, a pastor, and the pastor says, you know what? Uh, why don't you uh, pray a little bit about that tack in your butt? He's like, gosh, I'm doing all of these things, but the pain is still there. I don't, I don't like this. And so finally, he's sitting there, and he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. All these people are telling me all these different things. And this little boy walks up to him. He's like, what's wrong with you, man? He's like, my butt is hurting. I've got this thing in my rear. And the boy says to him, why don't you just get off that tack? He's like, oh, my gosh. Could it be that simple as just getting off the tack and getting on with my life? And a lot of times, that's us. We're like complaining about all of these things. Oh, this is terrible. You know, I'm the only one left. I'm dying. All these people are the problem. And God's like, what are you doing? Don't stay there then. If you don't like where you are, get up and move. Do something about it. That's the first thing. Pretty simple, right? <laughs> That's the first thing. Okay, second thing then that we see. Second thing. Okay, um, and this might be a little bit uh, pushing the buttons a little bit, but if you want to grow up, <laughs> I say this with all love, okay? If you want to grow up, You've got to slow down and shut up. Okay. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> okay, understand this. So here's Elijah, right? You remember everything that he's been through, right? Rah, rah, suck him in the jaw, flushing on the toilet with a bam, bam. And he's like going crazy. He's seen all of these. Anytime you take on 850 people who are against you, Okay, 850 people who are against you, and you overcome them. There's this rush of adrenaline, isn't there? I don't know. I've never experienced 850 against me, but I can imagine. Anytime you see, like, fire literally fall from the sky and burn up where there's water, this offering, that's pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? And so he's, like, flying, soaring on cloud, on cloud nine. He's just like, behold, he comes riding on the clouds, right? These are the days of Elijah. He's moving forward, right? This is great. He's loving life. And then there's like, hey, hey, guys, um, weather forecast, get, bust out your I, iPhone. Let's look at the weather forecast. No rain past three years. No rain in sight for the next three years. What are we going to do? He prays for rain, and then rains come down. This is pretty, pretty amazing stuff. And then he runs like faster than a chariot for not just like a step, but for 20 miles outruns him, and he's huffing and puffing, and all he's just this crazy adrenaline rush. And then God gets into this place where he stops him because he's run for 40 days and he's dead tired, and God's like, okay, let's hit pause for a second. Because you've been running frantically, and now you're at this point where you're completely spent, you're completely burnt out, you're ready to die. Just stop for a second because you need, if you want to grow up, Elijah, you've got to slow down. Richard Foster, who wrote this great book, The Celebration of Discipline, 
He says, our great need in our culture, our day, is not for more intelligent people. It's not for more gifted people. It is for deep people. Because you cannot go deep when you're constantly in a hurry. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age and is the curse of our church. This superficial Christianity, this uh, mouth uh, confession of our mouth, but no action to back it up, no conviction within our lives, first sign of trouble we take off. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. And he says, there are three things that in the, in the church today, the devil specializes in. Noise, hurry, and crowds. Because we're constantly swimming in noise so that we can't hear the voice of God. We're constantly busy. We're constantly in a hurry trying to get from one thing to another. When we're always hurried, then we're always worried. Just frantically going from one thing to another. And if anything slows us down, then our agenda has been ruined and we're filled with worry. And crowds. Always wanting to be around people. That's why when house churches shrink the church down and cause us to go deep, right, it surfaces in some people to saying, you know what, I, I don't want to just be with three people. I want to be with everybody. Because crowds are going to keep us from going deep. Right? Superficiality is the curse of our age. And, and Foster says, hurry is not of the devil. He says, hurry is the devil constantly running from one place to another, going from one thing to another. And he says, look, if you want to grow up, you've got to slow down. And so God slows him down. For some of us, the greatest gift that God can give, and I hope that this isn't the case, but the greatest gift that God can give to some of us is a physical ailment that slows us down. Maybe a sprained ankle so that we can't run around and do all these things and we have to just stop. Right? Some people say it was, a, it was an illness that caused me to, to stop from running around doing all of these things. Right? For some, it's the birth of a child. For Olivia and I me, mean, this is the birth of our child. And it's caused us to really slow our pace down and to realize that if we keep on going at this frantic pace, we're going to burn out and die. Right? God's gift to us is for him to somehow push that pause button, and he will do that for us if we don't do it for ourselves. It would be better for us to choose that willingly, to slow the pace of life down. Because you see, Elijah was running fast and furious, 100 miles an hour, and he got to this point where he was just completely spent, completely burnt out. Dallas Willard, this great spiritual formation expert, um, said to John Ortberg, pastor in, in San Francisco, he said, if you want to grow, okay, my two-cent advice is you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. If we are constantly running from one thing to another, we will never go deep with God. We can't. can't go deep with God on the fly. We have to slow the pace down. And that's what God's saying to Elijah. You need to chillax for a little bit, son. You're going to kill yourself. Let's, let's, let's slow down 40 days. Just chill. Just be. Just sit. Like, quiet down. Listen. Be here. And so here he stops, and then God says, I'm going I'm to talk to you. And so here it says in verse 11, 
a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. And Elijah's like, there, I will hear the voice of God. The rocks shatter before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After wind, there was an earthquake. Right? Elijah's like, all right, I'm waiting, God. Earthquake, boom, the, the, the ground splits. And he's like, God, I'm listening. He doesn't hear the voice of God. And then, just like he saw on Mount Carmel, fire. He's like, all right, God, I'm waiting for you. All I see is fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Literally, this passage where it says a whisper in the wind, it's translated the sound of sheer silence. You think Elijah could have heard this while he was running around and doing all of these things? Right? The sound of him running was louder than the sound of sheer silence itself. He couldn't have heard the voice of God. Could it be that a lot of times we're not hearing God's voice because we're in such a hurry, because we're constantly talking? I remember um, I, a couple months back, I read this comic strip. It's called Breakfast with Jesus, and it's got a series of, people having conversations with Jesus. And this one guy's like, Jesus, you know what? I just don't get it. A lot of times I just feel like you're not there. I feel like I'm just talking to myself. Nothing's happening. And Jesus says to him, maybe it's because you're doing all the talking. And the guy's like, oh my gosh, that makes a whole lot of sense. You mean like when my mind is, is going at like 100 miles an hour and, and then the last frame, Jesus is like, shh. Yeah, a lot of times, I hear that. I feel like my prayers are just going to the ceiling. That's it. I don't feel like God's there. Could it be that it's because we're doing all the talking? You ever get in a group of people and, and there's one person dominates conversation, five of you in a group, and you're talking about this group project, and bah, 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 they talk for like an hour, and they're like, what do you guys think? Come on, anyone, anyone, anyone? Like, dude, just shut up. If you would shut up, I would be able to speak. That's what God's saying to Elijah. Hey, if you were to just be quiet, I would speak to you and you would have a mountaintop experience like nothing you've before imagined and this would be every day of your life. You see, Elijah's problem, and you've heard me say this before, is that he thought it was okay to trade out his private devotion in exchange for public passion. This is what we do all the time. We're okay with these great crowds, and I'll worship God, and I'll live for Jesus. I'll die for him. But ours could be the generation, they say this out at Hillsong, that is marked by public passion but is devoid of private devotion. And that is a sure recipe for a superficial and shallow Christianity. If you want to grow up, then you've got to slow down, and you've got to be quiet a little bit. So hearing this um, sermon from Brian Chapel. He's a seminary uh, president out at Covenant Seminary. He's talking about how when he graduated seminary, he had a, a classmate who was, went into youth ministry. And this youth pastor did this, uh, did this one activity in the basement of one of their student ho- homes. Um, in the basement, they, around the perimeter, set up a, a, a circle of chairs, and on every chair, he put a Bible verse. Right? And there was one chair in the middle. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put one person, student in the middle, we're going to blindfold them, and they're going to tell us their problem. And if anyone uh, feels like you have a Bible verse that speaks to that problem, then I want you to read it out loud. And because they're blindfolded, it's going to be as if it's the voice of God speaking to them. 
And he thought it was such a great idea, but the students said, this is stupid. This is so dumb. Who's going to do that? And so finally, someone out of pity for the youth pastor went and sat in the middle, and they were like, we're not gonna, I'm not going to share anything deep. So they said, I want to get an A on my math test. And they all looked at their verses. They're like, not me, you, anyone, nobody. He's like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a colossal failure. And so that kid left, and he's like, guys, God's got no word for me. Sat down. There's this new girl in that, in that youth ministry. And so she sat in the chair, and she blindfolded herself. And immediately, immediately she said, you know what? Um, my life stinks. Life is terrible. I don't think I want to, I don't think I don't think I want to live anymore. And so everyone's like, oh, awkward. Who's this girl? You know, like looking down and looking at their shoes. And, and one guy looked at his paper, and he read, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out of it so that you could stand up under it. And then she said, but, but this is terrible. You know, I... No one cares for me. And this one student said, but I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And then with rage, this girl said, but my parents kicked me out of the home. I tried to go back, and they said, don't ever come back. And this one student looked down, and he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the pastor went in the middle and he un- took the blindfold off and she was weeping. And she said, but why doesn't God really speak to me? And so he's like, what do you mean? He just did. Like, this is the word of God. This is the living, breathing, active word of God. He's speaking to you through it. And she said, but I want to I see, I wanna see in, in clouds, I want to see something, something bigger. He's like, don't you understand? If he were to write it in the clouds, those clouds would fade away. If he were to shout it in the thunder, that thunder would disappear. But he said, you guys don't understand, so let me write it down for you so that you will never, ever, ever forget it. So that you could have it wherever you go, whenever you need it, whatever your situation, no matter where you are, no matter you're in the mountain or the valley, you can have this and you can turn every valley into a mountaintop experience again. And so often we miss out on the life-giving voice of God. We don't grow because we're so fast running through life and we're so wanting to talk and do all of these things that we don't slow down enough to hear the voice of God that speaks to us wasn't in the, the earthquake, wasn't in the fire, wasn't in, it was just in, in that simple whisper. And if we want to hear God, we want to grow and go deep with him, and we've got to slow down and we've got to shut up so that we can hear the voice of God. And then every place we go can become a mountain. The last thing then, if you want to end well, you want to finish well, right, you've got to choose your friends wisely. We hear this in Hebrews, hear this in Proverbs. Second Corinthians says, bad company always corrupts good character. You see this all the time, don't you? Like, what, what is it that differentiates one person from another when they go through hardship, when they go through hard times? Because in Second Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. 
Okay, that's not just like the top 10% of Christians or the top 10% of people who live in the Middle East. That's all anyone who wants to live a godly life. That's, do you want to live a godly life? Then here's what you can expect, persecution. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And people will hate you simply because you follow Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Let me tell you now so that you can be prepared then when it comes. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's what he says. So in that time of persecution, let me ask, what is the difference between somebody like Daniel who was thrown in the lion's den and yet by faith shut the mouths of lions versus Elijah when persecution came, not at the mouths of lions, but at the mouth of a woman, a queen, Jezebel, that caused him to fear for and, and run for his life. What's the difference between these two people? Right, oftentimes the Bible compares us to trees right, by a fruit will the tree be known. And he talks about us as, as fruit. Psalm 1 says, if you want to grow deep with God, you've got to plant your roots deep. And so you know people like this. When they go through hardship, what keeps them standing and faithful till the end? You look at their lives and you're like, well, they planted their roots deep. They were devoted to Christ, worship, the word of God, prayer. That was all an active part of their life. But then you look at somebody like, you know what? I don't know. I don't think their roots are that deep. You know people like that, don't you? Like in the time of trouble, like for some of you, you're looking at them and you're amazed because you're like, hey, I don't think their faith is that strong. But why are they still standing? It's like this enigma, this puzzle. Let me try and illustrate it through my vast knowledge of trees, okay? <laughs> I, I, I'm not really a tree expert, but I have seen pictures of trees and I've looked on Google and read up about trees. The biggest tree in the world is the redwood tree. Did you know? If it's not the biggest, I know someone will be like, no, it's not. Joshua Chang's going to correct me like Mr. Google out there. No, it's not. There's actually a tree out in West Africa. Okay, I don't care. Redwood tree is really tall. Okay. Uh, redwood tree, extremely tall. It is, as far as I know, as far as my research tells me, it is the largest living being, thing, creature, whatever, in the world. Okay, tall tree. Amazing. How does, how does this tree get so tall that you would think, okay, initially, immediately the answer is, well, it, for a tree to be that tall, it's got to have at least that tall, that deep of a root, right? That's what I would say to you. And you would say to me, or Josh would say to me, no, that's not true. Okay, the real answer is this. The roots of a redwood tree are actually extremely shallow. Oh my gosh, that just like takes the Bible out of my hands now. What? How am I going to explain this? Here's how. Shallow roots, but the strength of the redwood tree is that each of their roots are intertwined with all of the other redwood trees in that forest. So that when the time of testing comes, when the wind blows, they stand firm because they're locked in with the roots of other trees. Right? This is how we're made, people of God. Right? We need to... <laughs> The best of both worlds. What if a redwood tree had deep roots that were interwoven with others? That would be great. But that's what we can be. <laughs> right, you plant your roots deep. Imagine how tall a redwood tree would be then. It would touch the sky. But imagine how much we could grow if that was us. See, Elijah's first problem comes in verse 3 here. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he was all 
alone, physically. So that when he gets to this place where God says, where are you? He looks back and he says, you know what? I'm all alone. I'm the only one left. He says this in verse 10. He says it again in verse 14. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Something happens along the way when we're tired, we're discouraged, we're burnt out, we're spiritually not connecting with God. We have a misrepresentation of reality. God's like, what are you talking about? Okay, I understand that you're beat up, you're spun out, you, you've just gone through the ringer. But check this out, Elijah. Let me tell you a little sum-sum. When you get there, I want you to anoint this cat king over Aram and anoint this cat king over Israel and anoint this guy from this place to succeed you as prophet, all this stuff. And then he says in verse 18, by the way, there are 7,000 of your people who have yet to bow their knee to the altar of Baal. Now, you think you're alone? Think again, my friend. God has reserved this righteous remnant of people. He will not let you walk alone. There are people you just have to open your eyes to see. They're all around. They're in your workplace. They're in your apartment complex. They're in your school. Right? They're in your company. They're on your floor. They're in your church. They're everywhere. Right? We just got to open our eyes to see them. And a lot of times we feel like that. Man, I'm just so alone. Nobody cares about me. Nobody's thinking about me. And God's like, oh, contraire. <laughs> Do the contrary. 7,000 people. Right? Do you see? That's why house church is so important because you have that group. That's why we're doing this three-strand prayer is to get with other people and to lock your roots deep with them. Here's the interesting thing about fellowship is when you share, you've got a burden, you've got a sadness, the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. When you share your mourning with somebody, one person, that mourning is cut in half. You share your joy with somebody, that joy is doubled. This is a beautiful thing about human relationships, isn't it? This is a powerful thing. This is an amazing thing. And he says, look, once you get this, Elijah, you've got work to do. You are a prophet of God. There are people who need the word of God. Anoint these people so that they can go and take their message. There is one who's going to come behind you who is more gifted, more anointed, more filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, he will receive a double portion of the anointing. He needs you to get on your horse and get out there and get back in the game, Elijah. Don't listen to these lies. Don't listen to the doubts. Listen to the voice of God. Word of God, speak. Let it fall down, pour down, soak in your heart like rain. There's work to be done, Elijah. Don't sit here feeling sorry for yourself. Get out. Get back in the game. There's work to be done. There's a kingdom to be built. And as soon as Elijah gets it, like, you know what? Let's go. And he finishes, and the, the rest of his life is a whole lot better than this part in the journey. But why is it? Why is it that he goes to Mount Horeb? Why is it that he goes to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God? Very interesting, because Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And why is it that he goes 40 days in order to get to that place? There are other caves that were a lot closer if you really wanted to go. Because for 40 days, Moses spent on that same mountain experiencing God. And for 40 days... He just was in the intimate presence of God, and his face began to shine with the glory of God. And then from that place, he went forth renewed in his mission, renewed in his vision. 
Elijah the same thing 40 days and he experiences God on this mountain. Maybe he's thinking, God, I want to meet you in the same way that Moses met you. I want to meet you as in a burning bush. I want to meet you in this fire way. But God says it's just going to be a whisper. It's interesting because there was a time where both Moses and Elijah were together on top of the same mountain in a different place. You remember this. In Matthew 17, Moses and Elijah with Peter, James, and John, and then Jesus is there with them in the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is just, he's able to be seen in all of his glory. And Peter is just loving this experience. He's like, oh my, this is amazing. And then they hear a voice from heaven, and it just locks in on Jesus. Moses, Elijah, they just disappear out of the picture. And the voice of God from heaven says, Jesus, this is my son. Listen to him. And everything else begins to fade away. It's not this wayward, bumbling prophet Moses. It's not this depressed and suicidal prophet Elijah. But all of them are pointing to the true prophet, to the truly anointed one, to the one in whom is vested all authority in heaven and earth. And his voice speaks louder and clearer than any other voice. And he speaks to us today. He says, I've got work for you to do. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. There's a world to be won. Don't sit here feeling sorry for yourself. Don't sit here on your tack. Get up and go. Move in the power of the Spirit. The authority is yours. Go and transform the world as you do it. Let's uh, think right now. What is, what is it going to look like for me to just take one step forward today? What will it look like for me to be able to go to bed tonight and say, God, I've taken one step closer to you. I'm a step closer to you now than I was at the beginning of the day. What does that mean for you? Maybe it means that you get find two other people, like today before you leave service, and say, hey, will you pray with me throughout this week? Maybe it's for you to say, okay, right, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to set aside a time. I'm going to set aside a time, and I'm just going to listen to the voice of God. Maybe for some, you, you, you do that regularly. You have a, a regular devotional life, prayer time. But you're going to say, hey, you know what, God, I'm going to commit that if I pray five minutes a day for one minute, I'm just going to sit in silence and let you speak to me and let you give me dreams and visions. Give me a word. Give me a song. Give me a verse. Maybe for others, it's, it, okay, I'm going to stop blaming other people for why I'm not growing the way that I ought to. Hey, maybe for some of us, it's, there's one thing in your schedule that you need to just let go of. Just, just let go of that and say, I can't, I can't do this. And that time, that one hour, I'm going to spend just more time with God. Maybe for some of us, we're not being faithful to the mandates of our calling because there's so many things going on in our lives. Some of it good stuff, but some of it is a distraction, bad stuff. And we need to cut these things out of our lives. The last thing I think God wants for us to do is to hear this message and then to say, okay, 
I'm going to stay where I am. I'm not going to do anything about it. That would be worse than never having heard this message. Let's take a moment to pray. Just respond. Pray, decide, move towards God. The God who by grace continues to pick us up, meet us where we are, wherever we are, and lifts us up to the mountain. Takes us from one side of glory to another. Let's pray. Let's just pray for a minute or so, just responding to the word of God. Let's pray together, and then I'll, I'll close this time, and we'll continue to worship through responding in song and offering. Father in heaven, we thank you that no matter how far we've run, no matter where we've gone, how down in the dumps we feel, thank you that by the grace of God you never let go, that you're constantly holding on to us, that you've given us everything that we need, every fuel for the journey. Thank you that you don't call us and then go and tell us to go on flat wheels, flat tires, but you fill us up. May you give us wings so that we could fly out of here for the glory of God. Help us to believe. Help us to receive. Help us to drink deeply of grace and strength that we might be filled so that we might be emptied through the week, that we might be filled by you day by day. We thank you so much. Capture our hearts. May we respond the only way we know how, with all of us, for all of you, in every way. We receive our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.